Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We're also over on Facebook as well. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Get them through Google Pod, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab. You'll find all the fine NR podcasts, including Political Beats. Listen, share with friends, leave reviews, and... If you're so inclined, we, of course, invite you to join us and the community at Patreon, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us, help the show stay ad-free as it is right now. We have entry-level for for general support and some voting privileges, mid-level for early access to episodes. Recently, they've been days early, many days early. And you get them at a higher audio quality. And our upper-level best friend level for early access and the higher audio quality and monthly exclusive content shows, which have been very popular. Remastered episodes from the past, playlists, and much more. All of it at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram, where I'm ever so close, not that I'm begging, uh, to 3,000 followers. Uh, my tag team partner has far more than 3,000 followers, which is probably more of a curse than a blessing. He's standing by. Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Doing fine. Uh, just some general notes moving forward, however. From now on, I think I, I'm going to request that all of our episodes have me filmed in black and white in an abandoned warehouse with me wearing an acoustic guitar playing and singing uh, while an attractive woman dances mysteriously behind me. <laughs> and said attractive woman might be your future wife. Just could and, be. It's possible. Right. And, and for the record, I will always be wearing a white cotton T-shirt. <laughs> you can find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric. CD. And our guest for today's program is a senior columnist for The Daily Beast, author of the book Too Dumb to Fail, and host of the podcast Matt Lewis and the News, which I appreciate, Jeff, perhaps less so, as it is a nod to, of course, Huey Lewis and the News. You can find him on Twitter at Matt K. Lewis. He's Matt Lewis. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Appreciate you making time. And we begin each show by allowing you to introduce yourself to the audience, tell us about what you do with the Daily Beast. Tell us about the book. Tell us about how you got, got involved in all this political pontificating. Oh, yeah. So I'm actually from a, a this will play into our conversation, but I'm from a really rural area in western Maryland, um, but not far from Pennsylvania or West Virginia, where I'm sitting right now. So wait, wait, I'm from Maryland. Where is it? Hagerstown, like that area? I'm from Wolfsville, which is between Frederick and Hagerstown. Gotcha. I know the area, yeah. yeah. That's where I'm from. And like now maybe it's thought of as a bedroom community of D.C. or something. But Everything when I grew up, D.C. now, right? When Washington, I grew up, sure. Yeah, who cares? And the number one when they asked people, uh, kids like in fifth grade, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? The number one answer was farmer. And the number two answer was truck driver. <laughs> and so um, that that gives you an idea of, of kind of where I come from. My dad, my dad actually was a prison guard at, at, in Hagerstown, Maryland. Um and uh, so, you know, uh, he voluntarily went to jail for 40 years so I could get to write about politics. Uh, he would have um, he, he didn't you know, my, my dad passed away in 2004. But but I think if he thought that I could get paid to, like, talk about politics, it would have been about as awesome as uh, like the idea of me being like shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles or something like just <laughs> as un, just as unbelievable. So I'm kind of uh, I feel like every day I'm playing with the house's money. Uh, and, uh, 
and John Mellencamp, we'll talk about it more, but uh, someone I definitely, you know, kind of identified with a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm a writer for the Daily Beast. Before that, I was at Tucker Carlson's Daily Caller for six years. Um, and I did a stint at townhall.com and, and I kind of started blogging at Human Events um, way back during the uh, Harriet Myers Bush era. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's fun to, though I have to say, it's fun to get to talk about something other than politics right now. So thank you. That's the whole point of the show. Uh, and of course, what Matt is telling us is he was uh, born in a small town, uh, educated in a small town. We don't know about the whole dying in a small town. Hopefully we don't find out anytime soon. But that leads us, of course, to today's artist, which uh, which uh, Matt alluded to. Whether you know him as uh, Johnny Cougar or John Cougar or John Cougar Mellencamp or simply John Mellencamp, it is the, uh, the most number of names for a, a lead singer, I believe, since our Pixies episode. Uh, but we are tackling... Uh, the uh, the the career, this discography of Indiana's finest, Seymour Indiana's finest, if I'm not mistaken, uh, John Mellencamp, and we turn it back over to Matt for him to tell us uh, why he loves John Mellencamp, how you got into him, and why people should care about this music. Yeah, so I think the first time I heard of John Mellencamp, he was John Cougar Mellencamp. It was 1986, probably, as the album Scarecrow. And that was an important year for me because, you know, I grew up going to a very rural school, Wolfsville Elementary. And uh, then I was transferred to middle school, as, as all my uh, colleagues were, my fellow students, uh, to Middletown, which is a more, <laughs> believe it or not, it's a, it's, it's a bigger, more kind of cosmopolitan middle school. <laughs> and, um, and it was a culture shock. You know, I grew up listening to kind of country and bluegrass music. That's what my dad played uh, as a musician and also listened to. And all of a sudden, I'm now being thrust into this, like, 1980s pop music environment. Um, and my dad hated all the synthesizer stuff that was big in the 80s. But, you know, music like Bruce Springsteen, uh, Huey Lewis, Dire Straits, and John Mellencamp was like compromise music we could agree on. And that was a big deal because in, in a country area, you're riding around a lot, you know, in a car together. So it was important that we had music um, and Mellencamp kind of fit that sweet spot. I got the, I think the Scarecrow tape was one of the first tapes I bought myself. I think I bought it uh, in Hagerstown, Maryland, actually, and almost wore it out. Um, I just saw Mellencamp as like a guy who was cool and popular, but also singing about stuff that I could identify with where I come from, like, you know, 
living in a small town and even farming. Um, and so uh, it, it, it really connected with me. Like, interestingly, my wife and I recently moved back to West Virginia and he's kind of been part of the soundtrack of that experience as well. So, I mean, I think part of why, obviously why Mellencamp is important is because, you know, just like in, in journalism, I think that urban elites are probably overrepresented in journalism. Well, I mean, there aren't a ton of like rock stars who can really identify with middle America, but I think Mellencamp did that. Um, like, you know, the, we're going to talk, I'm sure about eating chili dogs outside the tasty freeze. <laughs> I mean, I like when, when I, when you hear that line, like I know exactly who he's talking about. I know people just like that. I could see the blue jean jackets they're wearing and the patches and, um, and you know, at the end of the day, uh, he really was able to connect. And also I think, you know, he connected with the, um, what I would say, like maybe the traditional salt of the earth side of, of, uh, of rural life, but also kind of the seedy underbelly, mm -hmm. the kind of rebellious seedy underbelly of, of growing up in a rural area, which I also know. And, you know, one of the funny uh, things that I, that stick with me to this day was like, you know, I grew up in a very Christian household um, and, and, and you might remember the satanic panic from the 1980s. Very well. Yeah. I had one, I had like a book about it and there were a lot of stuff about like, you know, playing records backwards and, you know, like heavy metal music, but there was a chapter on John Mellencamp and I'll what? never forget. Yes. The opening, like the lead said, um, there's a lot of range between patriotism and sadomasochism. <laughs> But John Cougar Mellencamp runs the gamut. And I think that <laughs> kind of is true. And and uh, whichever of those things you like, or maybe the whole spectrum. Uh, That's the whole a whole catalog. new spin on Hurts So Good, I guess. I, 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 <laughs> that was what it was, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, that's great. But I, I would just say, like, I still, like, literally listen to Mellencamp all the time. And it makes me happy. Um, and I still think it's good music all these years later. And I just don't know if you could ask of much more. From a musician. Well, I think it's really funny. I never thought I would have the opportunity to ignite a, a, a regional competition between me and one of our guests. But, you know, Matt grew up in uh, Frederick County, Maryland. And of course, I am one of those jerks who grew up in the DC suburbs in Potomac, right? Uh, and so, you know, for me, you know, we, you know, we always used to make fun of Frederick, you know, where you know, they called it Fredneck. You know, that was, yep. you know, and we called it where the men are men and the women are too. That was another line <laughs> that we used. You know, it's just, you know, you, you, you regional you know, shit talking basically, right? Everybody makes fun of somebody else. And we, we and Frederick made fun of Brunswick. So, <laughs> Oh God. And Brunswick, they just had to turn to West Virginia, I yes. suppose, or something like that. <laughs> right. You people who don't understand what Maryland geography is like are just totally lost here. And that's fine. But I, you know, for me, Mellencamp was a guy who, you know, he just existed. You know, I've talked about this with so many of these artists I grew up with in the 80s, right? He just existed. He was on the air. He was on TV. My dad would tape his videos. You heard him on the radio. Everybody knew Jack and Diane. Heard so good. Small town, pink houses. These are just ubiquitous songs. R-O-C-K in the USA. All that kind of stuff. And you know what? I have to say, I... I never really disliked most of those a couple of them i'd hate but most of those they're, they're fine songs but he never really grabbed me he never spoke to my life really in particular i never found myself saying i should go you know 
get a John Cougar Mellencamp album, you know, whether I'm renting it from the library or buying it at the store. What was I buying? I was buying Genesis, you know, and, and then I was later buying like pop stuff, you know, which embarrasses me to this day. I got to the extreme, my Vanilla Ice Man. That was my jam back in 1989 or whenever it was. Um, and then, of course, later on, I just felt no need to like go and explore the Mellencamp discography. And I kind of fell into that. It's fair to call it sort of the lazy dismissal. I said, everybody else says, like, well, the albums are no good. I did a little you know, cursory research, and I was like, wait, this guy put out seven albums before he even had a hit? What the <laughs> heck was that about? Which is actually a really funny and interesting story that we'll get into. Um, so, you know, he never really spoke to me that much. And, of course, I was a huge Springsteen fan huge Springsteen fan. My dad was an enormous Springsteen fan. I mean, he had seen him back as early as like 75 and stuff like that. So there was another reason why I was like, well, Mellencamp, that guy's just trying to be Bruce Springsteen. He's trying to be the boss. And he's not as good as the boss. I think actually there are a couple of times, and we'll talk about them on the show, where he actually does a better job on some of these themes than Bruce Springsteen would do. Uh, like a significantly better job. Better music and better lyrics. So I've always had like, you know, somewhat of a gimlet eye when I'm looking at Mellencamp. And I'm just like, eh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's okay. It's not great. Um, and that, of course, too easily can shade over into just like taking pot shots and being derisive. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that his music, all the actual songs, that the hits, the radio hits, with that one exception, hmm. are all really good. And I've really liked them my entire life. So I go back now and I listen to these albums, and I'll admit it, this is about the first time I've explored his actual albums. Not just the hits that everyone knows, but like, gone and listen to American Fool, or to Uh-Huh, or to Lonesome Jubilee. Find out, well, some of those albums are actually pretty great as well. Uh, the thing I think he has most going for him, and I think the thing that actually is his defining quality and his saving grace, is more than you know his sort of heartland attitude, more than you know, you know, the ability to write some really catchy pop hooks and, and some compact, tight songs. Uh, it's his voice. John Mellencamp has an amazing voice, and it's something that isn't really remarked upon often enough. More often than not, you just see it sort of like, oh, he sounds like Springsteen, that kind of thing. No, no, John Mellencamp has a better singing voice than Bruce Springsteen, and it's not really close, technically, but also in terms of the way he can like, you know, push through the grit and the passion and the power. Uh, he's got a great voice, and, and that voice saves a lot of his stuff, especially some of the more generic stuff on his earlier albums. I can almost just say, like, eh, I don't mind this, because it's him singing it, and I do really love his voice.
have always, I got to admit this, I've always liked about John Mellencamp is that, you know, get the bleeper button now, Scott, is that he's kind of just an asshole. I like that about him. He's <laughs> just a, an ornery cuss. He does what he's going to do, doesn't care. He's got a huge chip on his shoulder. He's a bit of a jerk. Um, but he kind of comes across to me as like a jerk with integrity. And this is a guy, he hasn't moved to Los Angeles. He's not living in Malibu. He still lives like – he's not in Seymour, Indiana anymore. He's, he's, he's moved to the big city. That's right. He lives a little bit south of Bloomington, Indiana now, <laughs> right? Which <laughs> is not exactly like you know, selling out. Gosh, one day he's going to really go corporate and go to Indianapolis, right? My family is from Indiana, so they actually all like Malachi. <laughs> My mom's family is from, all from Indiana, so they love that stuff. Uh, but that's how, actually how I think I first, you know, had conversations about him around the you know, around the table. It was my my uncle John. Uh, you know, ironically, he lives in Carmel, which is this very rich suburb of Indianapolis. It's like oh. I like I like John Mellencamp. You know, he's he's one of us. He's a down home guy. You know, um, but I like that attitude. He's really kind of just never forgotten his roots, and he doesn't really care to like go follow you know the jet set and do all that stuff, just because you know he knows who he is and he knows who he likes to be, and that's all that matters. You know, and so I'm going to have an interesting outsider perspective on this episode, and I hope not to offend people too much. Mellencamp has always been around, right? I mean, it's just those songs are everywhere. Those songs are the soundtrack of a lot of my life. And I, um, you know, I, I went through sort of, a, I guess, a cycle in which, uh, you know, in the mid to late 80s into the early 90s, Mellencamp was pretty i mean i want to say hip he's you know he, he was representing heartland rock but i mean he was on the charts uh, the songs were all around it was okay to like Mellencamp, and then for a little while that was a problem because he was everywhere and those songs were all over the place you could hear small town anytime you wanted and a couple of years ago i, I began to sort of look at him in a, a new way and say well may, is he is he even maybe a little underrated when you get down to it i um we get on my, uh, my my lawn tractor and, and mow the lawn. We get about an acre, and it takes a while. And uh, one of the one of the days, I'm like, well, we'll just listen to some Mellencamp, uh, the, the two CD, the words and music, right, the hits, and play through it. And and darned if I didn't know and was singing along to essentially every single song on that record. I don't know what general population people listening to this episode, you know, try to guess maybe how many John Mellencamp songs you think you know. I don't know what that number might be, but I'm here to tell you it's almost certainly higher. Those songs were, uh, the, the, the songs on the radio were so prevalent and so ubiquitous that you, you just forget that you know some of them, especially from, say, maybe the early 90s. Those songs have, have sort of faded away in terms of radio play on classic rock stations but back then they were they were they were very very popular i bet you know far more melon camp songs than you think you know and perhaps we'll put that to the test during the course of the episode today my first melon camp memory probably is the video for lonely old night and uh i'll talk throughout the episode certainly about the importance of video and mtv to to melon camp's career and how he used it but I do remember seeing that Lonely All Night video over and over of uh, Mellencamp at the uh, essentially the county fair uh, playing to character. Radio playing softly, some singing sad, sad song. He's singing about standing in the shadows of love. I guess it feels awfully alone. She says, I know exactly what he means. 
sad, 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 sad feeling when you're living on those in betweens, but it's okay. It's a lonely old And then, of course, Jack and Diane and Hurt So Good became part of the MTV rotation as well that I saw as I was growing up. I, I, you know, I owned Uh Uh-Huh. I bought whenever we wanted when that album came out. Really liked that one. And um, strangely, some of the stuff I came last to is kind of the Scarecrow era stuff in terms of at least the album tracks. I didn't explore that album for for a long, long time, but really, really enjoyed it uh, when I did. It is really impossible to tell the story of 1980s rock and roll without telling the story of John Mellencamp, without including him. And some of the, um, some of the angles he brought, both in terms of his, his protest music, such as it is, and I, I have some thoughts on that as we go along, in terms of him introducing these, these old instruments, be it accordion, uh, be it fiddle, you know, things more associated with the, with country and folk into that mainstream rock music he was producing, uh, all the way down to his influence. Uh, you know, listening to Scarecrow and I guess especially probably the Lonesome Jubilee, you really hear the seeds for what a lot of country, you know, new country music is today. Keith Urban um, will point directly to those albums and say, that's where I, you know, that's where I learned to love country music, even though that's essentially, you know, rock music about America, America's heartland, farming, trucking, as Matt was pointing out earlier. Uh, and also using those, those, those instruments that are more associated with the country and folk, uh, genres and, and Mellencamp really took a lot of that mainstream through the, the mid eighties period. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Jeff already mentioned Mellencamp's a bit of a jerk, uh, more than a bit of a jerk. He embraces that little bastard nickname. I, I've gotten some uh, messages on, on Twitter uh, from actually some from a couple of years ago and some from now is where uh, people know we're, we're taking on Mellencamp, essentially saying all the stories are true. He's a pretty big jerk to just about everyone in his circle. <laughs> and it doesn't care about it. That is simply who Mellencamp is. Is. Uh, and he dated Meg Ryan for a while recently, too. So if you need a celebrity hook, well, there you go. I just uh, figure anybody that's short is probably going to have a chip on their shoulder, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> you, know, like, you know, it's little bastard, but the little is, is there for a reason because that guy is tiny. Yeah. He's, I, don't, I, don't I don't think, I don't think it, he's prince size, but he's close. But, you know, I, I think he is. A, I mean, you can tell in the interviews that he's a jerk, but I don't think that's the persona that I get actually through the music. I mean, through the music, um, it's sort of, he's a, a charming rascal or something. Um, mm-hmm. Anyways, the, the, the line about a couple guys had to put him in his place. You know, I think that's probably autobiographical right. uh, with his big mouth, but um, I think he's more charming uh, in the three or three or four minutes of his songs than he probably is in real life. So we go uh, to the beginning, guys, and, and Jeff mentioned this. Uh, there was a there were a number of John uh, John Johnny Cougar uh, albums before there was any sort of a hit, uh, especially here in America. Johnny Cougar was big in Australia uh, before he was even big in America. 
these first couple of albums, guys, I, I had mentioned just trying to group them together a little bit. I, I know Jeff likes this perhaps more, likes some of this more than I do. But we talk about uh, Chestnut Street Incident from 1976, which includes uh, about half covers. There's covers of Pretty Woman and Jailhouse Rock and 20th Century Fox and even that Love and Spoonful hit, Do You Believe in Magic? Uh, there's, an album called no. the, the, yeah, there's an album called The Kid Inside, which was recorded in 1977, but not released until 1983. Now, there's one called A Biography, which was not released at all in America, but is important because it's the one that broke him internationally. In Australia. It includes I Need a Lover, which would be put on his next American album, John Cougar, which I do have a few more thoughts on. Listen, it, it, by the way, if you're, if you're um, you know, an American band... You know, being quote big in Australia is even worse than being big in Japan. The only, <laughs> only, the only group that has a right to brag about being big in Australia is Crowded House. Okay, everybody well, else. Midnight Oil too, right? Midnight, yeah, maybe Midnight Oil or yeah. or maybe Men at Work or something like that. But like, geez, you know, it's like it's it's a weird as heck that that he had to go there to like somehow you know get a foothold here in America. I don't hear a lot of great stuff on these first three albums, guys. I, I don't hear a ton of hooks. Uh, I don't hear uh, an artist who has figured himself out yet. And part of that might be label interference. That is a story of part of Johnny Cougar's young career, getting his name changed, having some labels perhaps exert some of their influence on the way these songs sound. Uh, I also don't think his voice, Jeff mentioned his, his singing voice, which I, I do think is a, is a, is a highlight and a, and a strong point, but I don't think it is necessarily on some of these early tracks where he's He's kind of strangled in his delivery at times, uh, a little bit rough-hewn and over-the-top in places, too. That hasn't become a strength for him yet, at least as I hear on these first couple of records. But, but, but Jeff, I know you like um, uh, at least some of this more than I do. Well, I mean, relative terms here, Scott. Let's, <laughs> let's, 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 not, let's not go crazy here. I think, first of all, the funny thing about like early Johnny Cougar, Johnny Cougar, this guy has like seventeen pseudonyms, like he's like a like a like a famous world criminal or something like that. And he's like he's like Carmen San Diego practically. But yes, yes, John Mellencamp actually like went to New York apparently, and of all the people for him to hook up with, this is the craziest of all. Uh, David Bowie's ex manager, you know David Bowie, glam rock, gender bending, crazy English weirdo, uh, had just recently dumped Tony DeFreeze. Uh, he wanted to go in a very different direction. Also realized that DeFreeze was basically ripping him off. Uh, why on earth would Tony DeFreeze, you know, ex David Bowie outrage, you know, you know, merchant turned to of all people John Mellencamp as somebody he wanted to, to manage. And then I was thinking about it yesterday, and it hit me. It's because he's a trend spotter and he's a trend hopper. And of course, what was bigger in 1975 and 1976, which is when Mellencamp first met DeFreeze, than Bruce Springsteen. And that's what DeFreeze clearly was seeing when he looked at Mellencamp singing and playing. He's like, ah, here's that heartland authenticity. This is coming right off of Born to Run. Darkness on the Edge of Town doesn't come out for a couple of years. And so that's when Springsteen takes his dark turn, right? But now it's just like, ooh, the winsome, wild, open-eyed innocence of, you know, American youth. And this is the guy who can sell it. So, yeah, let's take your name, Mellencamp. Ah, that's that's weird that's like some weird german name we're gonna call you johnny cougar all right and he puts him out with that first album called chestnut street incident which i actually don't think is a bad album but i will never say it is a good album either it's an album that's the highest praise i could offer for it. it's an album 
Um, it's okay. It's one of those one of those albums that it's a little generic, I suppose, but I really do actually find it reasonably enjoyable. Some of the covers are okay. Uh, the one on Do You Believe in Magic is terrible. And, and God, you know, <laughs> the Doors couldn't do 20th Century Fox correctly. Do you think, do you, think uh, you know, Johnny Cougar is going to be able to do a better version of it? Answer, no. Um, but I really do actually like their ver- his version of Jailhouse Rock. And I think his version of Oh Pretty Woman is pretty good. It's actually a little different than the Roy Orbison approach. He doesn't just try to slavishly imitate the original because, of course, who's going to imitate Roy anyway? Pretty woman, won't you pardon me? Pretty woman, I couldn't help but see. Pretty woman, you look lovely as can be. Are you lonely just like me? Kiss me. Pretty woman, stop a while. Pretty woman, won't you talk a while? Pretty woman, give your smile to me. Pretty woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty woman, won't you look my way? Yeah. Pretty woman, won't you say you stay with me? Yeah. Cause I need you on. Hey, I'll treat you so right. But I like those songs. I like, you know, Dream Killing Town. I like Supergirl, and I do like the title track. I like Chestnut Street. All right? Okay songs, but this is not going to be the focus of our episode. I'll tell you, the thing is, is that the second album, now I'm not talking about the one that was never released. Nobody needs to, to think for five seconds about The Kid Inside, which was only released once he made it big. It has an he, awful cover. Oh my, I was just about to say, the only <laughs> thing you need to think about is the awful cover where where Mellencamp actually does look like he's like 13, okay? I don't know how they got that photograph of him. He seems like he just got out of a swimming pool. And like, you know, he looks like he's a small child, a pre-adolescent child. It's very weird. And the music is terrible. And I do not really like his second album, A Biography, either. This is, I guess, technically where his story begins because it does have a hit single on it. And the irony of this is that I never knew that I Need a Lover was a John Mellencamp song. I, I thought that was a Pat Benatar song. I knew that from Pat what? Benatar, actually. Oh, okay, okay. I thought you heard the song and didn't and thought John Mellencamp's vocals was Pat Benatar. Okay. No, this, no, no. I heard this, I heard a cover version yes, of it. Yes, Pat Benatar like, for cover. Whatever reason, because right. my dad had the album at home. Yeah. And and so I had no idea that, that wait, that's a John Cougar Mellencamp song. And it's like a catchy tune, but it's also very telling that nothing about that song sounds even remotely like what it was he was going to go on to become famous for. No, I do you, I compare, do you like it? I, I know we're going to throw it to Matt for a second, but I, I need a lover. I, I compare it to like if Jim Steinman wrote a Mellencamp song because it is kind of big and over the top and it has, what, 97 seconds worth of buildup before the lyrics start. Actually, more than that, I think. It's almost two minutes before the lyrics start. And, uh, and, and, you know, his, his delivery is, is really over the top and everything about it is big. And it's, uh, like I said, it's like Jim Steinman wrote a, a John Mellencamp song. I, I like I Need a Lover, though.
Uh, so I'm looking at the cover of the kid inside. Um, it looks like a like Brooke Shields or something. I know with a hairy chest, and it, I think he might be wearing makeup and eyeliner. It's. I was about to say, yeah, he looks like you know he's, he's not only that, but his eyeliner looks like it's running because like it's like he's been crying or something. Yeah, it's really strange. I am working hard on tunes. I'm kind of a fan of anything Mellencamp does, um, just in the sense that like I'm not gonna you know. I'm not going to write home about it, but I could put on any of these albums and kind of like them and enjoy them. But what does surprise me is just like how many albums he got to record without getting a hit. I mean, like it, you could easily imagine that after one or two failed albums, you know, they would have said, okay, kid, go back to Indiana. It's not happening. Like how many, it's just pretty amazing how many shots he got before he really did break i guess big in like what 82 or something like that mm-hmm. yeah yeah he had these little minor hits like i probably kept him afloat i need a lover kept him afloat for just one more album and then he puts out john cougar which is of course the third album i have to say it's actually one of my favorite album covers of his he looks really yeah. kind of like a tough badass in that <laughs> photo i mean well, he looks he looks like a hardened criminal and i do like that look Mellencamp is a good looking guy i i think that that was certainly part of his appeal. I mean, like in a, in a James Dean, mm-hmm. greasy hair, greasy smile sort of way. Um, and in, during an MTV era, I think the look was definitely uh, part of the package. Now, I actually kind of this is the first album of his that I actually kind of like, you know, uh, John Cougar, as I said, great album cover. And it opens with a really great song called A Little Night Dancing that I would probably like and praise a lot more were it not a complete ripoff of Wild Night by Van Morrison. <laughs> Scott, apparently you and I both noticed this when it's we were listening right here it. in my notes. Borrows heavily from Wild Night. Yes, it sounds just like uh, Van Morrison's Wild Night, which uh, we'll talk about again later on in the episode. Yeah, the I, horn, I would say the horns and the harmony are clearly a ripoff. Hey, boys, get that though he's doing stuff again this is before he sort of like solidified his image solidified his sound so he's doing stuff like welcome to chinatown which is very like you know well first of all what is the guy from seymour indiana doing writing about chinatown second of all like it sonically it doesn't sound anything like heartland rock you know there's very delicate keyboards and guitars and stuff like that but uh I think it works. I like it and actually you know it was kind of amusing to go listen to that listen to songs like miami or small paradise and you just think like okay so this is his baby pictures you know <laughs> like this actually isn't as terrible as you would expect it to be everybody makes the joke it's like yeah god you know you hear some really tragic music go listen to those early melon camp albums before we made it big with jack and diane it's like this isn't really tragic 
I mean, it's certainly not as tragic as as the the cover of his next album, which I think is one of the worst album covers I've ever seen. And this is actually kind of the one that's, that kind of begins modern John Mellencamp. And I guess maybe this is where you can start with a little more detail. I do love the title, which is uh, called you know the ultimate. I don't you know don't give a rip kind of a title called <laughs> Nothing Matters and What If It Did, which is you know basically a out, you know, where a young jerk like Mellencamp would be coming across. I kind of, I feel I hear his voice in that title. Um, the album cover itself is like awful. It's like him, like in a trailer with like a really, like an old fat lady behind him. Like, I guess it's his mom and they live together, that kind of a thing. Uh, apparently that lady was like, in a, like a John Waters regular, which fits. Like you could totally see her being in like Pink Flamingos or something like that. Um, but this is his first reasonably interesting album, and it was uh, it was Scott who pointed out to me that this is produced by, of all people, Steve Cropper, mm-hmm. um, who is, you know, of course, the great Steve Cropper of Stax Volt, you know, who's you know the guitarist from Booker T and the MGs. Guy's got, you know, basically, you know, he's in rock and roll Valhalla. Um, I, I actually just I just made a bowing down motion with my hands. You couldn't see it. I was like, <laughs> we're not worthy because Steve Cropper is truly one of the greats. But uh, yeah, this is the first one of his kind of quote modern. St- he's still John Cougar at this point. He's no longer Johnny Cougar. Now he's John Cougar. The name will continue to change. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this one before he finally breaks big. I think it's a weird amalgam of things. Um, yeah. And some of them work and some of them don't. But again, he's somewhat figuring out what he wants to do artistically, what what he wants his signature to be. Steve Cropper's production this year, and I think it helps out a song like Ain't Even Done With The Night, which I've always liked. It's it's Mellencamp's attempt to write a soul song, essentially, and helps to have Steve yeah. Cropper along, I guess. There's uh, a great, by the way, there's a great video of Ain't Even Through, whatever that is, <laughs> with the night. Uh, you can find it on YouTube with, uh, it, it's really pretty hideous. I think Mellencamp comes out wearing like a red sweater. <laughs> Um, and it's just, you know, it's very, it's very un-Mellencamp, actually. He still hasn't found who he is. Well, I don't know, no good comers, and I don't know, no cool lines. I feel the heat of your frustration, I know it's burning you up deep down inside. Singing the lyrics, that 60s music he will, uh, which he will do often in the future. Sam Cooke singing on the radio, uh, ain't even done with the night, cracked the top 20. So again, a minor hit, keeps things going. Uh, but other places here, I, I think, are essentially like Mellencamp at his most Springsteen aping in songs like uh, Don't Misunderstand Me. And, I like that one, and, actually. Yeah. And 2MG. Um, the other single that was released from the album is a tune called This Time. And... 
two things I want to say about this time. One is that it's the sound of Mellencamp having no future, meaning that's not that that can't be the way for him. That that song, that style can't be the way forward for him. And it's like it's thrown out there. All right, that's not going to work. We'll try something else. But it does sound to me, maybe Matt will appreciate this, it sounds very early Huey Lewis and the News to me, like from their first album or maybe even picture this. But it has sort of some new wave qualities that like early Huey Lewis and the News would, would were picking up on. And that's Mellencamp's attempt to try to do something in that vein. And he hated it. And uh, uh, I think it was clear that that's not the path he should take. I used to roll down the window let that tape tape blow And look at the honey that I was holding that night I say, hey girl, you're the one And then I laugh when I take her home You got your arms around my shoulders You got my soul confused with my heart You were too smart to believe all those tight lines And I was too dumb to know what had started the very very end of a song called cheap shot which is essentially him picking a fight with his record label uh the record company's going out of business they price their records too damn high uh the guitar has this kind of footloose feel to it all right and maybe there's a path forward right maybe that's something he can pick up on and carry into his next album but for a large part of that nothing matters it still feels like track uh checking out these different ways that he might be able to make himself a career Actually, I got to speak up on behalf of Don't Misunderstand Me. Yeah, okay, the lyrics are simply cliches. Like, yeah, you know, I'm a liar, babe. You can't trust me, but please understand that when I'm in your arms, I love you. That kind of stuff. You've heard it all before. I actually like the music. I like the production. I like the way it's played. And I actually really like the way that Mellencamp delivers that song. Delivers the lyric, delivers the melody. above everything else on this album including you know you know the the hit i don't really care too much for ain't even done with the night it's not bad but i prefer something like don't misunderstand me you're absolutely right about this time talk about a dead end you know it just didn't feel anything like you know you know 
not only we know in retrospect that wasn't what he was going to be doing, but it just felt stupid even then. This <laughs> <laughs> doesn't work. Um, but yeah, this is you know interesting. But I guess all of that has just been interesting as prelude to one of the most obnoxious number one hit singles of all time. And I'm sorry, I got to lay my ta- my cards here on on the table. I friggin' hate Jack and Diane. I, <laughs> I, I know that everyone likes it. It was number one for a reason. This is the song that changed his career, that changed everything for Mellencamp. This is the album where he broke out big. I can't stand that song for a whole number of reasons that I will not get into now. I want to let everyone else have a chance to talk about American Fool, 1982, the big Mellencamp breakthrough. Is a, I think it's a really good album. Um, I um, Jack and Diane is not my favorite song. I think it's probably just because I've heard it so many times, and you know, you've got the the kind of drum machine and the you know, I don't know, snapping fingers. And uh, but like I said, it does. It certainly captures something. That whole thing about like tasty freeze, and you know, um, it, it definitely. You know, it, it definitely captures like what it was like for me, kind of like being alive in the late 70s and early 80s, like in a in kind of a rural area, uh, rural era. I, I think uh, area I think hurts so good is the better song of the two that are probably the, I guess those are the two big hits off American Fool. Uh, I think hurts so good is just a better song. Um, and I have to say, I, I like the cover of this. He he does Mellencamp. This is Johnny Cougar, John Cougar still. Yeah. Uh, but I think he is he is coming. This is when he comes into his own and becomes the John Mellencamp that we know. This album was really big. I mean, he Mellencamp essentially went from one top 20 hit to a number one album for nine weeks, a number one song in Jack and Diane, another one that went to number two in Hurts So Good. There's a story uh, sort of going to his uh, his pig-headedness about, I think they were opening for Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, something like that. And they got to a venue, and it was it was after American Fool had started flying off the shelves, and they were not on the marquee. It just said Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And Mellencamp uh, said, listen, uh, I'm taking my band. Uh, we're getting on the plane. If our name's down on the marquee in the next hour, we're just flying to the next town. We're not playing tonight. And the rest of the band was like, uh, John, are you, are you sure? Because we like making money and, you know, playing and uh, we'd hate to kind of ruin our career here. Uh, mm-hmm. But they went with them to the plane. They literally started the engines and waited for the call that his name was on the marquee. They put it up. He played He, he played that night, wherever whatever city it was. 
Uh, here's the weird thing. Where I said nothing matters and, and what if it did was essentially Mellencamp throwing stuff against the wall and finding a path. He found a path on American Fool and then mined it like four separate times. Hurt So Good is a great song. And I hear Hurt So Good in like three other songs on American yes! Fool. Yes! Okay, okay. I, I, it was the observation <laughs> I was going to make. Every song on this record sounds yes. like Hurt So Good okay. or Jack and Diane. So <laughs> Hand to Hold On To is like Hurt So Good slowed a bit. If you just sing the words slower, you can fit them into Hand to Hold On To. Uh, can You Take It takes the bridge of Hurt So Good, you know, the I ain't talking, no big deal, that part takes that portion and makes it into an entire song. Uh, Thundering Hearts sounds a bit like Hurt So Good. I, I, Thundering Hearts, to me, sounds like something that could have been on the Top Gun soundtrack. It was very... Yes. Right, right. Um, and so much of this sounds like he found... He wrote Hurt So Good, like, this is awesome. Let's do it again. Four times. Um, and Hurt So Good is so good that it almost works. Uh, I, I like Hand to Hold On To. There's one called uh, Close Enough uh, later on in the album, which I think works well. So he's picked a lane here on American Fool, even though his label nearly dropped him while he was making this album. The label almost said, just forget it. Just stop. We don't like any of this. Uh, they let him finish the album. They put it out. Of course, uh, they were happy with the results. Uh, but yeah, this this to me is Mellencamp found it and then said, well, let's do it over and over again. And he did. And it worked uh, to his success. Wait a minute. So too, if you ever listen to like the Hamilton musical, for example, there's all sorts of callbacks where they'll play the same <laughs> line. It's obviously that's done intentionally. This maybe is not done intentionally, but John Melkip is not writing a musical <laughs> score. Here, right? No, I, this 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 may sound like spin. It may it may seem like I'm a, a Mellencamp apologist, but I do think that um, that having those themes is not a I mean, it's not a theme album, but but it's it's not necessarily a bad thing no, with within the uh, within the album. I will just say this: I want to. Exp- I, I by the way, I agree. Hurt so good is the better of the two hits by far. I really like. It's got a nice Stonesy crunch to it. Real simple stuff. Great sort of you know, obviously clearly a satanic S and M ritual themed song, <laughs> as, as Matt explained to us earlier in the show. You know, I'm all in for that. My problem with Jack and Diane isn't about the music. And in fact, what I really love about the music is it's it, it, it's a very intelligently constructed song. And that, you know, it starts with the big guitar, you know, the way it opens, you know, dun, 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 dun. and then the hook on that song actually is a little acoustic guitar note, one note, dun, 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 boom, dun, 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 dun. just playing that one note, you know, for the big electric guitar crunch to that little acoustic guitar note, that always just yanks you in you hear that you hear the immediacy of that and then it slides into the verses and then it goes into the chorus and then it goes into the big electric thing in the middle eight again musically it's a well-constructed song and i guess a lot of credit for that has to be given to a guy who was trying to make it as a studio musician but couldn't uh by the name of kenny aronoff uh, he would end up going on to not only work with Mellencamp on like all of his albums for the next like 15 years, but also become like one of the most famous 80s and 90s session musicians in, in, on 
you know the United States rock scene, um, he manages to glue that thing together. Because if you had anybody playing in any different style, there's no way you could go from the rock <laughs> to the acoustic ballad without sounding like you were like tripping over you know, a, a stone and then falling face first into a muddy river. Uh, it works musically. And that's, I guess, why it had to become a number one hit. But it's the defeatism of that song that has always bugged me. It always felt like he had been listening. Mellencamp had been listening to like the river. You know, and clearly it's the river, not even darkness on the edge of town, but it's the river. There's those sort of tales of woe and defeat songs like Stolen Car or Point Blank, um, you Fade Away, Price You Pay. And he was just sort of like doing his own take on it, which is, you know, a little ditty about Jack and Diane. But, you know, it's the chorus. It just seems like such a, uh, you know, uh, sort of a council of despair to me. And it, even when I was a kid, it bugged me. I was just like, oh, yeah, life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone, um, that just—I don't know. Yeah. There's, some, there's something about something about just like saying, like, yeah, you know, we're 18 and we're already done. We already peaked. Let's <laughs> just quit. Jacks his back, flexes thoughts for the moment, scratches his head and does his best James Dean. Well, then there and Diane gotta run off to city. Diane says, baby. You ain't missing nothing. But Jack say, oh yeah, life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone. Oh yeah, they say life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone. I don't love it either, that part, but I will say this. I mean, I think Mellencamp, didn't he, like, get his girlfriend pregnant when he was, like, 16 or 17 17, or something? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's somewhat autobiographical, I would think. Yeah, I know. I know. But there's a reason that my favorite version of Jack and Diane instead is that great YouTube parody (laughs) where it's just a guy who turns the entire lyrics into sucking on a chili dog. He's like, sucking on a chili dog, sucking on a chili dog, sucking on a chili dog, sucking on a chili dog. (laughs) And then you see him like, you know, like. Re- reaching over to his iPad to like scan the lyrics forward, and it's all just <laughs> it's one of my favorite YouTube videos of all time. And I guess it's like I guess appropriate revenge for me for a, a music that I liked, but but a lyric that always rubbed me the wrong way. Sucking on a chili dog, sucking on a chili dog, sucking on a chili dog, sucking on a chili dog. Sucking on a chili dog, 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 sucking on a dog, sucking on a chili dog, chili, sucking on a chili dog, sucking on a dog, sucking on a chili 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 dog, suc
the dolls, sucking on the chili dolls, sucking on. A year later, uh, Mellencamp would add Mellencamp to his name. So we now enter, if you're keeping track at home, uh, the John Cougar Mellencamp era of John Mellencamp's career. And uh, I'll tell you guys, this is... Uh, I love how he does it in phases, by the way. Like, he doesn't want to take the cougar away yet, because everybody knows him as <laughs> that. right. So he's just going to wait a little while to shift, you know, and then the cougar will go, and it's still just John Mellencamp. And before you know it, it's like the ship of Theseus, where, like, you know, like all the pieces have been replaced. Is it still is the he same still, person? Is he still yes. John Mellencamp? He is, you can tell. The tattoos are the same. Uh, a year later, uh, because you don't want to sleep on a hit like American Fool, uh-huh comes out. And uh, this, uh, for me, guys, this is the leap. This is the first uh, classic, really truly, good, truly great uh, really good album. album. Yeah, and even actually, even the deep even the deep cuts too that yeah. have never been on the radio. It, it pains me to admit it, folks. This is a legitimately great album. Take us, uh, take us into uh huh. Oh, let's just okay. So, crumbling down is a hit. Pink houses. I'm sure we could do a whole show on. Authority song, hit, great song. Uh, and then you go to warmer place to sleep. Jackie O, play guitar, serious business, loving mother foya, <laughs> and golden gates. These, I, I don't think there's a bad song on the album. Um, you know, uh, some of them are better than others, but I like every uh, everything on this tape. I'll call it a tape. Because it was a tape. <laughs> and it's the one I got from uh, the library. <laughs> Jeff and I have this habit of getting into music by what which albums the library happened to carry. Uh-huh was one of the Mellencamp ones that my local library had. And so, yeah, that's how I first uh, heard it. His like, songs... play, like, play guitar. I mean, there, there's just, like, great lines on there. Like, forget all about that macho shit. Better learn to play guitar. You know, I mean, just great. You know, again, it's not it's not Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> but you know, there's some, there's some truth to it. Like, uh, I could just tell you as a, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, uh, maybe not, not the most physically intimidating kid, uh, you, you, you start learning to play guitar, you know, that that's your go-to maybe if you're not, if you're not going to make the football team, uh, he was talking to me once again. Well, you pump on and shine shoes and wear your hair just right. You go down and on cruising street cause you want to score you really want to show your scars Forget all about that macho shit And learn how to play guitar Play guitar
got uh, for this album, which which helps, uh, a crack band assembled by this point. Jeff had mentioned uh, Kenny Ironoff on drums, and then he's got a pair of guitarists, Larry Crane and Mike Wanchik. And Mike Wanchik would be with uh, him. He's still with him today, in fact. Mike Wanchik's been with him as long as of any band member that he's had. It helps that those guys have played together. It helps that the songwriting is better. Uh, Matt, Matt mentioned all the hits. My favorite of those three is Authority Song. Um, I, I didn't know the words to Authority Song for years and years and years because there's no way that those lyrics should fit in the places in which Mellencamp puts them. If you if you scan the lyrics and try to fi- find out where in the melody they're going to go, it, it it shouldn't fit. But he, he, he maneuvers them around so they do fit in, the, in that cadence. And that second verse where, you know, call my preacher, I say, give me the strength for round five. The preacher says, you don't need no strength. You need to grow up, son. Stop fighting, <laughs> right? And uh, Good. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, it's just a three-chord song, as someone on Twitter pointed out. But it's how you use those three chords. I've always been a giant fan of Authority Song. It is one of my favorite Mellencamp songs overall, in fact. The, the only thing I remember about Authority Song is the first second I heard it. It's like, isn't this I Fought the Law yes. and the Law won? Clearly it, it, yeah. I Fought Authority and Authority always wins. I mean, clearly he was taking that theme and running with it. place to sleep i think that's a big leap too because it's one of the first songs where you you can tell what a great band can add to mellencamp's music and instead of sort of this series of sort of riffs and stabs and melodies you you get the band actually working within this really really great groove uh, this band is actually it's the first time you might say they're they cook on warmer place to sleep it really is a great melodic song
And then um, I, I want to mention later in the album a song called Serious Business because um, mm. as he's, Sex and violence and rock sex and, and violence. This is a total Rolling Stones song. He should have just handed this to Mick and Keith and said, record this. It would have uh, spiced up Dirty Work, I gotta say. Dirty Work? I, I hear it more on, uh, on Undercover, but maybe it's a Dirty mm-hmm. Work track. But that start-stop, you know, Richards-type riff, uh, Aronoff sounds like he's trying to play like Charlie Watts. It's sex and violence and rock and roll. It's a total... Uh, it's not an homage. He's just writing what he knows and loves, and this is this is this is him writing in a stone sort of motif. But it works. I, I like serious business, and we haven't talked even about pink houses yet. Maybe Jeff wants to talk about that. Oh, I have a lot I'd like to say about pink houses. Listen, this has always been one of my favorite John Cougar Mellencamp songs, and I'm not going to lie. Part of the reason for that is that I grew up in a little pink house myself. In fact, my family still lives there. Well, my mother passed away recently, but. Uh, you know, my dad's still there, uh, my brother's still there, and the house is still there, and it is indeed a an odd shade of lavenderish pink. <laughs> Go figure it, it. Trust me, it works, people. It doesn't look as weird as you might think. Um, but uh, the lyric to that song, I think, is one of the best ones that he's ever written. There, there, there'll be one, I think, later on that I think is even better um, on a later album. But I've always loved, you know, there's a black man with a black cat living in a black neighborhood. He's got an interstate running through his front yard, which is to say, like, massive traffic. Oh, gosh. But he's, you know what? He thinks he's got it so good. He's never had it so good. Because why not? You know, and and, and is, is he being sort of sarcastic or ironic when he says, ain't that America something to see? Home of the free, little pink houses for you and me. Um, you know, maybe he was, you know, taking shots at, like, how do these people think? That, oh, it's all so wonderful then when they don't realize that you've got, like, you know, cars zooming at 55 miles an hour right outside your front door. Um, that's the American dream today, man. <laughs> just, just to own a home. <laughs> it's really good. You know, a young man in a T-shirt listening to a rock and rolling station with that greasy hair and greasy smile. He's talking about himself. And he says, Lord, this must be my destination. You know? When he says, like, you know, son, you're going to be the president someday when I was younger. They told me that. And, you know, but everything about those old crazy dreams kind of came and went. That is him kind of doing the sort of Bruce Springsteen. This is prior to Born in the USA, thankfully, so you can't accuse him of knocking Bruce off. But it has that Glory Days feel to it. But it's a much smarter song, a much better song. And uh, the idea of like little pink houses for you and me, that's not just a beautifully written little you know image and a couplet and a chorus. It's a song that actually meant something to me as a child, too, and still does to this day. So I really have that really strong nostalgic attachment to it. I think one of the really great things about America is that we assimilate. Um, and even like, you know, Born in the USA is a protest song that today is a patriotic pro-American song. And like, I think Little Pink or Pink Houses was probably supposed to be kind of a protest song somewhat anti-american actually and it's a strength of america that we basically assimilate that and i I remember like in 92 watching i think it was abc had um a john mellencamp did a free concert from indiana that was like broadcast live nationwide and it was called ain't that america (laughs) you know like within like within 10 years it had become zero irony right (laughs) There's 
People like, you know, gangster rappers like Snoop Dogg or like people like Ozzy Osbourne, you know, eventually become like beloved salesmen, you know. Ice-T um, now plays a cop on television. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and like, I think it's a great thing that like America is is so effective that even criticism of America becomes patriotic mm-hmm. over time. And I think that's that's kind of the case here and it's just a good it's a solid song obviously he was even talking about like opioids back then he's talking about the pills that kill yeah the thrills and bills it's 1983 man like it's way before like our current epidemic but like you know yes it's it's not like some sort of like warm gauzy you know oh here's the joys of heartland america yeah there's there's a bitter tinge in there there's there's like a little piece of tinfoil that if you bite down on it too hard you're gonna get yourself cut on your gum line but it's just still a wonderful song, and yeah, it's it's. I think it's one of his truly immortal ones. Well, there's people and more people. What do they know, know, know? Go to work in some high rise and vacation down at the Gulf of Mexico. Oh yeah, and there's winners and there's losers. Simple man, baby, pays the thrills, the bills, the bills that care. going to be a somewhat continuing series through the show but there's uh there's a lyric that i just i don't know what what is happening it's on pink houses uh that, that hey darling i remember when you could stop a clock i i swear he doesn't say stop a clock for years and years and years i know it makes no sense but i'm i was certain he said i remember when you could starve a block and i i don't know what that meant but that's what he says and even knowing now he says i remember when you could stop a clock i, I listen and i yeah. still don't think that's what he says <laughs> no it, it's not it is not terribly clear what he he sort of mumbles it somewhat right. I, I don't know what starve a block means but i was certain that's what he was talking about for the longest <laughs> there's, time there's a bathroom on the right yeah you know? <laughs> and the other thing i want to mention about uh-huh 
uh, before we move on is uh, is the importance of MTV and, and videos to, to Mellencamp's rise and success. Yes. All singles on this album, you think of Crumbling Down, and you can picture Mellencamp sitting backwards on a chair, tap at his foot. Uh, the Pink Houses video was huge, and MTV did a giant giveaway where you could win a pink house with John Cougar Mellencamp. And, oh, that's uh, even worse than giving away Neil Young's Cadillac. <laughs> Which was around the same time. Right. And uh, an authority song, you know, John Mellencamp and the boxing ring. All these are very striking, uh, you know, visual images that you were then connecting with Mellencamp's music. And this would continue into, into future albums as well. But you can't, I think, underplay uh, the, the, the effect that MTV also had on uh, John Mellencamp's success in 1983 when... MTV still two years old and looking for videos to play and looking for artists to, to grab onto. Mellencamp was absolutely one of those guys for that network. So I guess this brings us to, oof, is it his best album? Maybe his second best album. This is the period where I, I think it's fair to say that he actually, you know, as I tweeted last night, I was like, well, much to my regret, I, I, I'm chagrined to inform you, America, that John Mellencamp actually put out several really great albums during the <laughs> 1980s. Uh, Scarecrow, Right on the Scarecrow, Blood on the Plow. Uh, this one has even more stocked with like massive hits than, uh, than the last one, and I don't think there's a bad song on this. I even like it when he gets his grandma to sing a song. I'm pretty, <laughs> is that his grandma? Yes, or is that, I, is. No, I think that is. It's I think that grandma. really is her. Yeah. It uh, is? But, I, I didn't check, yeah. But I think like, about... Think about this. I, I think I think that we're just gonna like blow past the the weirdness of this. Like it's it's 1985, and he put it, and there's a song about farming is like the number one song in America. That's right. that's really amazing in and of it's like like if you would you know it's sort of like John you know uh, John Fogarty. It's like I'm gonna write a song about baseball because there's so many great <laughs> rock and roll songs about baseball. Um, you know, if you'd come to me and said, like, I'm going to do a song about farming and I'm going to wear like an FFA jacket or, you know, like I would have been like, that's maybe not a great idea. Like, you know, maybe stick with uh, Lonely All Night instead. But no, it, it totally worked. Crops you grew last summer, weren't enough to pay the loan. Couldn't buy the seed of plant to spring and farm the bank foreclosed. Call my old friend Shipman up to auction off the land. He said, John, it's just my job and I hope you understand. They calling it your job, oh hard, sure don't make it right. If you want me to, I'll say a prayer for your soul tonight. Grandma's on the front porch with a Bible in her hand. Sometimes I hear a singing take to the promised land. You take away a man's dignity, you can't work his fields and cows. But blood on the scarecrow, blood on the plow, blood on the scarecrow. And started the, the Farm Aid thing, you know, obviously uh, came right after that. Yeah, I mean, it was him and Neil Young, I believe, were the three. Willie Nelson, Willie Nelson too. Yep. Yeah, the three main founders of Farm Aid, which produced some damn fine music. <laughs> to say, like, those, those shows, I've watched actually most of them. They're really good. But uh, even Neil Young during the mid-'80s was putting out good music. Nobody realizes it except people who have listened to our podcast episodes. But, yes, I, I think this is just a fantastic album. I mean, I will just start with the obvious one, and I'll leave the rest to you. 
small town, you can object to like the simplicity of the lyrics, right? You know, I was born in a small town. You know, I was taught to fear Jesus in a small town. You know, used to daydream in that small town. But you know what? That riff is just undeniable. They, and again, Aronoff's drumming just makes that song perfect. Yeah, just, and they mix the drumming. The exact, exact right rhythm for that song. The drumming is also mixed, is a very high in the mix. Mm-hmm. Much higher than you would normally think. And it really worked. But, um, you know, was he like, did he come from um, more of like a rock? I, I assume that, that the drummer came from like a thrash background or something a little a little different, you know, because it was basically country music with the drums mixed a lot higher. I mean, I think he was like a conservatory school guy, actually, in the in the in the northeast in like Boston or something like that. I, I don't know. I'd have to go look it up. But. Like he wasn't like you know like a, uh, a session hand in Nashville or anything like that. He had a much more sort of formally trained and rockist background. Uh, but well, it, that's any any other approach to that song, and it wouldn't bang nearly as much as it does. And yeah, that one. There's no irony in that one. That that that's not like Pink Houses where you know there's a protest you know undercurrent to the song. This one is just straight up saying, "Listen, now I don't care if you think I'm a hick from the sticks. I like it here." It's where I'm going to live. It's where I'm going to die. Fine with me. And he kind of has remained true to that. He yeah. did go through that one stint in Meg Ryan where he lived in New York City. <laughs> now he's just back living in South Indiana these days. Educated in a small town. Talked to fear of Jesus in a small town. Used to daydream in that small town. Another foreign romantic, that's me. But I've seen it. I think also there's some other, you know, there's a lot of hits on this, but some of the, the kind of obscure songs, Minutes to Memories is solid. Rumble Seat, I think, is is probably underrated. That could have probably been a hit. Mm-hmm. It's a really, this is a really good album. There's no doubt. Uh, small Town, there is one lyrical thing I wish to point out. And this is a, I call it a McCartneyism, I guess, because I always think of this in the uh, Live and Let Die uh, lyrics when McCartney in, in sings, this ever-changing world in which right, we live in in, yes. in this ever-changing world in which we live in and and Mel- Mellencamp gives us and it's always bothered me because I'm a weird guy he says no I cannot forget from where it is that I come from like you just need one just <laughs> one from not two froms uh but that's from small town uh Matt said minutes to memories is pretty I don't remember what you said pretty good I think minutes to memories is maybe the best song on the album uh mm-hmm. and, and this is my favorite I, I, I do think it's his best album. Uh, Lonesome Jubilee is awfully good, and, and Uh-Huh is too. I, I, I think front to back, Scarecrow is his best moment, and, and Minutes to Memories is one of his best songs. Uh, lyrically, this 
guy sitting on a bus talking to a guy next to him, giving him advice and sort of blowing him off at the time, but then realizing later that he was totally right. You know, my family and friends are the best thing I've known. Through the eye of the needle, I'll carry them home. Uh, life sweeps away the dreams that we have planned. Uh, and then, of course, that big chorus. You are young and you are the future, so suck it up and tough it out and do the best you can. I mean, that's a total Mellencamp lyric, right? <laughs> suck it up, tough it out, do the best you can. Uh, Admittus to Memories, yeah, I, I think that is the best song here. I mean, Small Town's great. Admittus to Memories, I think it's the best song here. And it's one of the best in his entire career. On a greyhound, miles beyond Jamestown. He saw the sunset on the Tennessee line. Looked at the young man who was riding beside him He said, I'm old, kind of worn out inside I worked my whole life in the steel mills near Gary And my father before me, I helped build this land Now I'm 77 and with God as my witness I earned every dollar that passed through my hands My family and friends are the best things I know Rumble Seat's very good. Uh, I, I've always liked Lonely All Night, again, because I think it's it's uh, connected to, to seeing those videos for the first time. His vocal delivery on Lonely All Night, I think, shows the progress he made in, in these couple of years here, where everything was so loud and, and kind of abrasive and over the top on those early albums. By Lonely All Night, you hear the way he sings the, the verses, and he's he's almost subdued. He's almost subtle in the way he delivers the verses before he sort of gets loud and gravelly in, in, in the choruses. Uh, you know, lyrically, a song like uh, uh, Face of the Nation, um, where he's saying, I don't recognize the face of the nation. There's, you know, he, he's protesting, and yet um, there's, a, there's a line in there where he says, I, I know it could be better. You could say that about anything. There's a theme in some of his protest songs in which, and I'll get to this in, in some future songs too, where he's not necessarily looking for people to blame uh, all the time. There are some fingers pointed, no doubt. But in a lot of places, he's simply describing a situation and saying, let's fix this. Let's do it better. Let's help these people. He's not necessarily calling someone out. And there, anytime he gets somewhat pointed, uh, many times in his commentary, he sort of couches it a bit with something like, hey, I know it could be better, but you could say that about anything, right? Yeah. And it's about our country. Well, it could be better, but anything could be better. Let's work and let's just try to try to get there. I think that 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 is a really uh, important part of a lot of the commentary, the social commentary he's working into these these mid to late 80s albums. So many lonely people Damn this broken dream Yes, I know it could be better You say that about anything
stand for something too. With another one later, with you uh, stand with for the, something or you'll fall for nothing. With that right. line, I've seen a lot of I've seen lots of things, but I have but not I seen a lot, seen of, a lot of other things. <laughs> right, and I wonder how many people found out about Sylvester Stallone's adult film for the first time through the lyrics of "You've got to stand for something" because he talks about seeing the Italian Stallion. I, I saw Rocky Stallone in an X-rated movie called The Italian Stallion. <laughs> Which is true, it exists, and people, I think, know, because of the internet, of course, know much more about it now than perhaps they did back in 1985. Rumble seats, great, and um, uh, yeah, ROCK. Yeah, I was going to say ROCK. Yeah, go ahead. ROCK in the USA, I think deserves to mention. It was obviously a hit. It's it's a salute to like Motown singers. Well, I mean, Frank- it literally says it right there in a subtitle: "A salute to sixties rock." <laughs> and I think this is <laughs> subtle about that. Not subtle, <laughs> but I mean, he mentions don't you know don't forget James Brown. Uh, Mellencamp, I believe, was heavily influenced by James Brown. And, you know, we talked about Pink Houses, um, ROCK in the USA, obviously a lot of, you know, African-American singers uh, that he, that he's saluting here. And then you get this kind of speaks to something about Mellencamp we haven't talked about yet. Maybe we will. Uh, but how he does talk about especially uh, like rural African-Americans mm-hmm. and uh, is, is kind of include maybe more inclusive than you would than you would think someone known as kind of a heartland rocker would be. I mean, that shows up a lot on the video for Paper and Fire, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about on the next album. R.O.C.K. in the USA. This is one of those songs that, like, I knew it as a kid, obviously. And the, the chorus is undeniable. R.O.C.K. in the USA. You know, like, you're going to like it. It's, it's, you know, it makes you want to bob your head and pump your fist in the air. And, you know, these days, I do think to myself, wow, is that just a little bit of cheap nostalgia, you know? It, and I guess, you know, that maybe the older I get, you know, that was my sort of post-adolescent phase where I was downing on it, saying, well, that's pretty simplistic, isn't it? Nowadays, I'm just like, yeah, I like ROCK in the USA, <laughs> too. So <laughs> I like I like rocking in the USA. Good, like, you know, Eddie Crocker-esque 50s, 60s beat. Yeah, I, I, I like the song, flaws and all. You know, it's a simple tune. But you know what? I got room in my life for simple tunes. Voices from nowhere and voices from the large town Filled our head full of dreams and turned our world upside down There was Frankie Lyman, Bobby Fool and Mitch Ryder They were rockin' Jackie Wilson, Shangri-La's young rascal They were rockin' Spotlight on Martha Reeves Don't forget James Brown Rockin' in the USA Hey! 
That was a hit. There were many hits from the Scarecrow album. And it also has that uh, has that uh, typeface that is on every album from 1985 on whatever label he was on. I guess Mercury <laughs> at that point. Every album had that had that uh, had that typeface uh, on the cover. And All caps, yes. Yeah. And, and so where do we go from Scarecrow, which was a huge success for John Mellencamp? Well, let's get some accordions, baby. Yeah. And this is you know Matt alluded to this earlier a bit. You know, in an era, in this mid 80s uh, era where so many artists overall and especially sort of rock artists are trying to experiment with synthesizers and sequencers and what's the new technology and how do I fit into this you know new uh, radio era and what's going to get played Mellencamp goes exactly the other way and he goes back for his sound Uh, he's going to bring in he's going to bring in again accordions and dobros and banjos and uh, and fiddles uh, and this folk and country instrumentation on his next album, The Lonesome Jubilee. He'd also grow his hair out of it, uh, which would be released in August of 1987. This is another smash for Mellencamp. He's on a big winning streak. And uh, I don't know, Jeff, if, if you were, if this is the third album you were alluding to as being truly great. I imagine it was because uh, this, again, it, it thematically is very strong and, 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 and the writing is very strong. And the way he's able to blend, again, his, his essential you know, rock skeleton of these songs with the instruments that he wants to bring in and does successfully and expands his band is really unique at the time. And really, it's, it's unique for, for rock music in general in, in that era. Yeah, I was absolutely talking about this album. This album is great, and I think I, think I would say this is his best album. <laughs> shouldn't just be thought of as hits they're actually legitimately great songs paper and fire check it out and especially cherry bomb are just some of the best music he ever wrote and i i was actually asked to make this observation by a friend of the show a former guest on this show (laughs) i will not reveal his name but he's been on here a couple of times and then i laughed when he said it to me because i was like this is already in my notes Cherry Bomb is the song that Bruce Springsteen wished that he could have written when he was trying to write Glory Days. <laughs> uh-huh. The same kind of a theme, right? You know, about like going back and looking at the days. You know, there's that great lyric where he's like, he, he runs into the guys who like you know, basically punched him out. Yeah. You know, <laughs> at the bar when he was he had a big mouth, and you know now we just laugh about it, and we just you know we say, hey, do you remember when? 
You know, it was just like me and my big mouth, you know, they had to put me in my place. But I see those guys these days and we just laugh, you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was funny when you punched my teeth out. Um, <laughs> that's the thing. And that's when a sport was a sport and grooving was grooving and dancing meant everything. We were young and we were improving. What a beautiful kind of almost a hopeful lyric. It, it, it's nostalgia. You understand like, you know, 17 becomes 35, right. 17 turned 35. Right. And so, yeah. Okay. Times have changed, and he's not who you were when you were a kid. But that joyful, just joyful accordion. Hmm. Oh, this is this is my this is my favorite Mellencamp song. I I can't blame you. And I the, can't blame you, Matt. It's, and the accordion and fiddle together. Yeah, it's so that just I can't get enough of it. It's it, it's it's a cheery song, and I have to say too, as I've gotten older, that nostalgia rings even truer to me. You know, like the seventeen has turned thirty five. Well. A lot older than thirty-five. <laughs> and then, and, you, know, like it's, you don't have to look back with regret. You don't have to say, like, no. "Oh, now I'm older, and and isn't it so lame?" It's like, no, I'm okay now. And boy, it was really fun back then. Let's just enjoy reminiscing about those days, and we don't have to have like a gloomy view about the present either. It, it's a very positive song. You know, we've mentioned Springsteen a few times. Uh, you know, he has in my town, uh, uh, you know, and I'm born in the USA, uh, my hometown. He talks about like, I'm, I'm 35. I got a son of my own now. I mean, Springsteen and Mellencamp are probably both in their mid 30s when I would say when they really hit their peak. You know, um, we could argue about that, but. It, it, it's you know a lot of times rock is for young people rock rock music um a lot of times rock music is for young people um not just for young people but performed by young people and here you have people who are more mature putting out good music arguably their prime that i could still identify with today The beauty of this entire album is that I think all of the songs like fall on those lines. You know, Paper and Fire, we were talking about this just a second ago, and you're saying, like, 
well, you know, he has a feel for like, what do you want to call it? You know, you know, African American, rural African Americans too. He's not just about, you know, like, you know, you know, here's from you know, white guys in Southern Indiana. Yeah. But, but man, that video was a fantastic. His videos, which I saw a, a billion of when I was a kid, the only one that ever really made a huge impression on me is the one for Paper and Fire. Yeah, I got, I, I got to jump in because. I just, I just very strikingly remember seeing the video for Paper and Fire for a number of reasons. You've got, you know, a white rock and roll star with these instruments that I'd really never heard used before, except in Weird Al Yankovic songs. Uh, you know, accordion, fiddle, banjo, stand-up bass, all in, all in this rock and roll sort of uh, ens- ensemble. And playing that chase music to you, it's very kind of like weird Alex, right? And they and they do it uh, with with black band members, and and they're and they're performing in a poor rural black community. And look, that's just not something that I saw as a seven year old at that point. You know, living in the Chicago suburbs, that's not something that you saw on MTV, who famously would you know would not even play Michael Jackson for a long time. This is only what three years or so uh, following that point, and you have this video in which uh, not just black people are in the video dancing, but you see you know during the uh, Kitty Aronoff uh, drum hits, different black. Children faces are being popped on the screen in the middle of paper and fire. You combine that with what is uh, maybe the best song on the album. It's close for me. It just burns with energy. It is just amazing the 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 the, the ache and the angst that is bottled up and then released during the choruses of paper with fire. It's a it's a tremendous song, and you couple it with this very striking video that again I just rem- I remember watching it for the first time, the first two times even today and being I, I mean confused right I mean confused about what the heck was going on with these instruments and the style and and and, and all of it wrapped up in this one video that that's that's the power of, of matching you know music with with visual music with videos back in, in that decade she had a dream boy was a good one so she chased after her dream with much desire But when she got too close to her expectation Her dream burned like paper and fire Paper and fire, sticking up the ashtray The cherry, the cherry bomb video too, which is kind of a simple video. I'm guessing it was like a low, a low budget video. Um, but there's the, you know, African American man dancing with a white woman, which mm-hmm. you know had to at the time have been uh, maybe controversial. The thing about Paper and Fire's lyric that I think is really underappreciated is that it tackles a subject that nobody writes songs about, okay? And it does it really intelligent. It's probably one of like the two or three greatest lyrics he ever wrote. What is it about? I mean, unless I'm getting it wrong, this is the way I've always heard it. It's about people abandoning like rural communities to like go to the big city. And, you know, what was that line where it's like, there's a good life that's right across those green fields, mm-hmm. and each generation stares at it from afar. 
you know, but we keep no check on our appetites. So the green fields turn to brown, black paper and fire. It's basically saying like everyone's just getting up and moving away, leaving, you know, nobody's tilling the earth, nobody's taking care of the fields. And so these communities are now dying out. They're dying out because of basically, you know, migration. Everyone's just going to where the opportunity is or where the excitement is. Uh, again, this is a subject that is, A, never covered <laughs> in rock music, specifically like top 20 chart you know, chart hit rock music. And if it is, it's usually you know, far more heavy-handed than this. People probably barely get that's what, what he's talking about in that song. I just think it's a real triumph of his. It's a good life. Right across the screen And each generation Says that it from fall But we keep no check On our appetites So please Speaking of lyrics, there's there's one later on on the album called "We Are the People," and uh, I really like it. It's uh, it's one of my favorites uh, here on Lonesome Jubilee, and it, it begins. You know, those of you who are shut down, those of you for who the, who the world is rough, those of you uh, who are homeless, our thoughts are with you, and all these people who are sort of down and out, and then and, and they come out and say, our, "Our thoughts are with you. Our thoughts are with you." And then, you know, getting back to, to my point about how he sort of couches some of his protest uh, music, some of, some of his lyrics, there's, I, I think, a magnificent verse in which, in which Mellencamp says, if you are one of the fortunate ones, we all know it's lonely up there. We understand nobody's got it made, so our thoughts are with you. And sort of bringing in everybody the only thing you can't do according to we are the people is try to divide and conquer if that happens then we will rise up against you so says mm-hmm. john mellencamp but the the lack of finger pointing and the lack of sort of uh you know personifying the enemy in, in the course of identifying something that's going wrong something that can be corrected the 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 uh choice to make to sort of bring everybody in even those who have been fortunate those who have who have had it well uh, we know life's not perfect. We understand nobody's got it made. Our thoughts are with you, too. We can all sort of work together. And that's part of, I think Mellencamp at his best is sort of this this effortless storytelling. You know, sometimes the lyrics aren't perfect or they're, they're sort of, they're, they might not come out the, the, the exact right way, but we understand the points he's trying to get across. We understand the picture he's trying to paint. And especially on Scarecrow and Lonesome Jubilee, I don't think his songwriting ever got better but on these two records. If you are one of the homeless, may our thoughts be with you. If you are scared and alone, your thoughts are with you. If you are one of the fortunate ones, we all know it's only
I don't even mind the, the silly dumb nursery rhyme that ends the song. Was it Rudy Toot Toot or something like Wrote that? Wrote it for his daughter. His daughter, his daughter said he had written a song um, on the last album. Uh, uh, I can't remember which one it is now about justice. Uh, and and Mellencamp named his daughter Justice. Just- 85, in yeah. fact. <laughs> Mellencamp had named his daughter Justice. And this other daughter, whose name I'm, I'm, I'm not going to forget. Teddy Joe. Uh, said, well, you never wrote a song about me, Dad. Write a song about me. And so he wrote uh, Rudy Toot Toot. And uh, the band liked it enough to actually you know, work it up into a work full it song. It's, just, it's nice. It's nice. Now, I have a question for you guys. What would happen if you took all the sound of Lonesome Jubilee and you recreated it, but this time without any hooks? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have Big Daddy, wouldn't you? Yeah, you might. Uh, an album, by the way, I actually still kind of like just because I love that sort of heartland, you know, accordions and fiddles kind of sound on Lonesome Jubilee. But there's just no question that, like, th- there aren't, like, any big pop hits on this one. And there's at least one song that I find to be just, like, wildly inappropriate, like, for, like, you know, uh, you know what he's trying to do on the record. It's just, like, how did this, like, wander its way in? But I do like I do like Big Daddy, even though it wasn't exactly a flop. It, it, it sold a number of copies. But this is the first one in a long time that he has where like nobody can remember any songs on the album. Uh, yeah, the hooks are not there. Uh, too many songs. The way I put it was too many songs fail to leave an impression. Right? They just mm-hmm. exist. And this is a tough time for Mellencamp. He's going through a divorce. Uh, his wife took his daughters with her uh, apparently there's turmoil and uneasiness this is an internal looking record not an external looking record so you know scarecrow and lonesome jubilee are, are certainly i think largely looking outside and on big daddy lyrically we, t- we turn inside a bit i think that the album is saved from being a total miss by a trio of songs right in the middle and i hope it's one of these not the one that jeff actively hates but no, in um, fact, it's probably the one that I'm going to say is my favorite, I'm guessing. All right. So you get Jackie Brown, there you pop go. singer, and Void in My Heart. Those are right in a row, right in the middle of the record. The heart of the record, I think, saves Big Daddy from being a total disappointment. Jackie Brown's one of Mellencamp's best songs that he ever wrote. Um, it, it, you know, It's centered on this acoustic um, part with, I think, one of his most brilliant melodies. And, and, and Mellencamp essentially said he wrote it as if he was um, a, a different, a poor guy in sort of similar situations uh, where things are going badly for him. You know, he lost his daughters and he's living in a shack with no running water and the bathroom's out back. And how does this life go for this guy uh, who, 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 for lack of luck or fortunate circumstances, whatever it might be, you know, if, if uh, I Need a Lover didn't take off at Australia... Is this where Mellencamp may, might have found himself years into the future? And it's married again to just this indelible melody. I, I think Jackie Brown is one of the best songs Mellencamp ever, ever wrote. Is this your life, Jackie Brown? Poorly educated, forced to live on the poor side of town. Your daughter Jackie Brown This pretty little girl In a worn out clothes That had been handed me down This your wife Jackie Brown With sad blue 
walking on eggshells so you don't see her front you get pop singer which i think is a really good song i love that nasty riff i, I think Kent gets a little uh well i i don't believe him when he says it's misunderstood because the lyrics are essentially him bitching about how tough it is to be a star and it's impossible to misunderstand right those lyrics. And, and he's and i think they he, smack you in the face like a cold <laughs> fish slap it's like very obvious i, I think Mellencamp's explanation is, is essentially well it's not the you know it's not the uh it's not the writing the songs and stuff it's just the stuff that comes with it right hanging out after the show never wanted to hang out after the show and of course that's that is. That's bad. what it is. That's the whole package. You can't. You can't complain about something and getting the the fame and the and the money and all this without doing the stuff that makes it possible. You know, funny um, is it's Scott. Getting you your sent picture me an article, taken. When, when we were doing our little like you know pre-show stuff, you sent me an article about like Mellencamp. It was done like back in like '96 or something like that. You know, and you say, hey, read this. It's actually pretty good. And he's just an ornery bastard in the entire thing. <laughs> and he talks about like how he would actually get out there like during the Lonesome Jubilee tour. He's selling out stadiums every night and he'd resent it he'd like resent having to play to all these people and do all this stuff and even he was like self-aware enough to acknowledge it's like what kind of a jerk am i (laughs) to actually be like i'm selling like millions of dollars in concert tickets like i actually am like angry at the people for showing up (laughs) and that's kind of where this song comes And then the third, and then I'll let Matt uh, take it, is uh, is Void in My Heart. That's the third of this 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 center trilogy, and this is clearly a very personal song. Uh, it talks about being divorced. It talks about losing kids. Uh, you know, having kids taken away. You know, right at the end, Lord, Lord, you make Lord, you make me like I am. Can you heal this restlessness? Uh, there's a lot of Mellencamp being uncomfortable with himself and I think being uncomfortable in his own skin on Big Daddy. It makes for an uncomfortable listen at times, but it would be a better listen if the melodies and the hooks were stronger and they're just not. And that's why I think except for that that real strong uh, trilogy in the middle, it's it's largely a disappointment. There's a void in my heart I can't seem to feel Been a parent I had three children around and a big house on the hill dollar in my pocket and it didn't buy a thing Now there's a void in my heart and a hole in my dream Well I poured miles of concrete and strung wire for telephones Young bitches when I was a young boy and I first left my parents home Sang my songs for millions of people sang good yeah i think that's true and you know i think it's probably safe to say that there are like four albums in the 80s 
you know, and that we just went through, uh-huh, American Fool in reverse order, uh, Scarecrow and Lonesome Jubilee uh, that are great. But it's I think it's super impo- super hard for for anybody to stay on top forever in whatever field it is. And one problem that I think musicians have is at some point you you become rich and you become out of touch, you know. And I think that people like um, like Springsteen and and uh, and and Mellencamp, you know, have tried to avoid this. And the fact that Mellencamp stayed in Indiana helped, but. At a certain point, I mean, how do you, you know, you're, you're a millionaire. You've been a millionaire for a decade. <laughs> you have people who like love you. Um, how, how do you stay connected? And, and, and eventually I just think you ultimately can't, right? And so from this point on, I think Mellencamp has some good songs, but I don't think he ever really goes, uh, gets back to where he was in the 80s. Well, you know my friend wait till we get to dance naked but I, I i will say this that the song that i was uh which i perversely i like in a weird way as well but the one that i was thinking of scott it just doesn't fit is country gentleman mm-hmm. which is this this it lays it on so thick yes. with a trowel and heavy grouting in that chorus we're like you know, this country gentleman he ain't gonna help no poor man he ain't gonna help no children he ain't gonna help no women and i listen to the lyric on that and i just think about well who else is he not gonna help is he not gonna help puppies is, <laughs> is he not gonna help butterflies is he not gonna help environmental sustainability like like what what other things is he not gonna help is he is he not gonna help like greening the environment <laughs> It's just so heavy-handed, and it, it almost kind of brings to mind the point that Matt just made, which is like you know you try to stay in touch with your, you know, your angry protest heartland roots, and, and then then you find yourself at a point where you're forcing it. And that song, I like the melody actually, and it's a decent band performance, but that lyric just makes me cringe, 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 cringe every single time. And so to punish you all, here's the clip. Glad-handed folks are chatting to the nation We never knew what really to believe Just a word upon slogan with a emotional connection And in the papers all we'd ever read Is so-and-so big shot signed his resignation Now come to gentlemen who wants us to believe That it's kind and honest is the best Daddy was largely, I think it went platinum, but as Jeff mentioned, uh, pop singer maybe, but there's not a real song on Big Daddy that has stood the test of time in terms of just, just popping up in places where you'd expect hit songs to pop up. And um, and, and the label wasn't all that happy with, uh, with sales at that point. And especially because, as Jeff mentioned, Big Daddy sonically really retained some of the things from Lonesome Jubilee, some of the instrumentation. And so the, uh, they were pretty insistent that Mellencamp make one of those back-to-basic rock records, pretend you're 18 again, let's rock out with some big riffs. And that's what you get with 1991's Whenever We Wanted. Um, and I, I have to say, I, I bought Whenever We Wanted when it came out. And so I, I'm pretty sure that I like it. I, I'm pretty sure I like it more than you guys. I'm pretty sure I like it more than most Mellencamp fans, probably even. I, I really like Whenever We Wanted. It's a listenable record, 
And where there were very few hooks on Big Daddy, I think there are hooks galore on whenever we wanted. They're, they're not developed all the time in the ways that might make for more interesting songs. But you can't deny it. Like, I mean, that, 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 that buzz saw on Love and Happiness or on, on Crazy Ones. There are guitar parts that really will get stuck in your head. There, there, are, there are really big riffs on whenever we wanted. spun off a good number of hits and these are ones that you might have heard and forgot but like get a leg up and now more than ever and again tonight and even love and happiness and this is a rock world that nevermind was released two weeks previous uh use your illusion was released three weeks before whenever we wanted this is not the kind of rock music that was going to top the charts the way that scarecrow and lonesome jubilee did just four, five, six years ago uh you were hoping to sort of scrape the lower rungs of some of the uh, the charts perhaps but again, I like Whenever We Wanted. One track I, I, I want to put a spotlight on quickly is one called Last Chance, which I really like a lot. It has this exotic sort of spooky riff. Uh, there's a Hammond organ that peeks through the noise. Lyrically, a song about a, a guy just being totally numb to his surroundings. And, and this is the last chance to do something, last chance to move, last chance to get up and go. And it certainly sounds like he's not going to take advantage of it. But I really like that sort of change of pace on Last Chance. And in general, I, I like whenever we want it. There was someone I'd hold up. I like uh, that video for Get a Leg Up with the very attractive looking lady in the background with the snake tattoo on his shoulder. And apparently so did John because he ended up marrying her. Yeah. So, you know, can't can't go wrong with that. But yeah, I was listening to this this week. You know, this is this is the era of Mellencamp that I just I never knew anything about because this is that he's not making the big charting singles anymore. And I'm you know going into first my grunge phase, then my Beatles phase. I'm just out, I'm checked out. Uh, I listened to it this week and i thought to myself well everything here is like 
it's good, it's catchy, there's nothing that I'm offended by, but it reminds me of some of his early pre-American yeah. uh, Fool stuff, where it's like, it's all kind of just sort of like generic and inoffensive. I don't remember anything really from this album, except that sexy lady in, in the seeming, who's like apparently in an art studio. And apparently that might be John's painting himself. He's a painter. I didn't mm-hmm. know this until I did research for the, for the show. But uh, yeah, that that's my only abiding memory of this record. And I felt like I felt like, and this might this might have to do with like how old I am and where I was in my life, like when this came out. But you guys mentioned like Nirvana um, and sort of the zeitgeist, the musical zeitgeist when this happened. But like, I feel like right when Get a Leg Up came out, like Bob Seger had a song out, The Fire Inside, and like Tom Petty's you know, Full Moon Fever was probably out around the same time. And it seemed like at this point, Mellencamp was now kind of like a classic rock guy trying to do a comeback. That's at least how it felt to me. So in my view, he wasn't really relevant the way he had been in the 80s. This is now the early 90s. And uh, he's still putting out good music. But it's like, you know, not the kind of music that young people would be listening to at that point. Now, here's a surprise for me. A latter era, John Cougar Mellencamp, or I guess at this point, just John Mellencamp. We didn't even notice that he dropped the Cougar from his name somewhere around this time. <laughs> that was this album. That was whenever we wanted as the first one that's just John Mellencamp. Well, here's a big shocker. A genuinely really good latter era John Mellencamp album. I'm talking about Human Wheels. I really like this one. It has that sometimes fatal-seeming sense of maturity. I think he says that, like, I was painting during most of this album. <laughs> you know, it was just his excuse for saying, like, I wasn't really creatively engaged. But I like it. Actually, the one I, the song I hate the most is the first song, which is When Jesus Left Birmingham, which was apparently a single. I've seen the video. It's weird. Everybody's using drugs. I'm, like, trying to give, it's like, the scene of, like, you know, a heroin junkie trying to hand a needle to a kid. I don't know what he's trying to do with that. Or like somebody's handing a bong full of weed to like a small child. It's strange. And I don't also like the comical callback to Jack and Diane. And you know what I'm talking about. Like like all of a sudden in the middle of the song they break into like let it rock, let it roll with the Bible belt, come in, save my right. soul. Yes. But you you know, Johnny, my buddy, Johnny, street R and B is not your thing. Maybe you should stick away from that. this album i really like the title track i think he wrote it with george green his his old buddy who been helping him since hurt so good um that's a really great song it's kind of adult contemporary which is a kiss of death right (laughs) but it's a really really good lyric written by green and it's a beautiful melody 
to have a lyrical collaborator for a lot of these songs because when he did it himself he sometimes would end up coming up with a thing like Suzanne and the Jewels <laughs> which just before this show started I was joking with Scott about I had to take notes because that lyric made me laugh the first time I heard it uh, the opening line it's like Suzanne was a jewel keeper and you know what she stole all of the jewels and then she took them to a foreign land which was strictly against the rules <laughs> <laughs> so dumb <laughs> It's good music. It's really good music, actually. But oof, those lyrics. John, work with a collaborator. You probably are going to benefit from it. I like this album quite a bit, in fact. Although I just really think that it, it, it shoots itself in the foot by starting with that terrible When Jesus Left Birmingham song. This is not the late career album that I like the best. In fact, I don't like it very much at all. Um you can hear him already messing around with some of the beats and rhythms that he'd get into on the next few albums on the first two tracks, When Jesus Left Birmingham and then Junior. I don't think he, he that works all that well. Um, like, What If I Came Knocking was one of the singles here. And What If I Came Knocking is just a wheel spinner of a song. It wants to rock. It really wants to get off the ground. It has every intention of rocking, and yet, instead of just kind of slogs, it never, it never takes off. Um... French Shoes, I, I think, is really weird, not a place. There's there's a weariness to his delivery in a lot of places. There are only a handful of places where I think that it pays off. Human Wheels, the title track, I do like. A song called Beige to Beige, which is mid-album and mid-tempo. And then actually the last song on the album, one called To the River, is one that has some... Uh, I put it uh, has some dynamic satisfaction. Um, there's there's just some somberness that sort of hangs over a lot of this album, and it sort of breaks out onto the river. Uh, and even again with some of the rhythms he's working with here, there's a little bit of that here. I, I think he finally gets what he wants. I think he finally gets it right uh, onto the river, right at the tail end of Human Wheels. Some of the songs are getting long, like five plus minutes. That's not necessarily a strength. 
of Mellencamp is these you know longer songs, and on Human Wheels they start to creep in that direction. Uh, I just never a bit a big fan of this one. How about you, Matt? Yeah, I, I think that's about right. It's um, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I can't believe I'm the guy out on the island on this one. That's strange. I, are you a big fan of Dance Naked though? You a big fan of? Uh, you know, Wild Night. This is the album he recorded on a dare, apparently. Like they said, like you're not making commercial music anymore. So he's like, yeah, he's probably like, throwing back beers at the bar, and he said, yeah, you know what? Screw it. Let's just book two two weeks of studio time, going and knock a bunch of crap off. It's it's the and, Ryan Adams rock and roll dare, where you yeah, know he submitted right. uh, Love Is Hell. The label said, no way. We need something more commercial. He said, oh yeah, I'm gonna write this in three and a half days. Take this, which is and, essentially and, Dance Naked. And he got like what is like a number three hit single. This is the last John Mellencamp single that I remember as a kid. Of course, and, you know, and especially when I was watching like VH1 and MTV. Like I gotta tell you, when you're 13 years old and you've got a lot of hormones just running through your body, uh, a film with a, a a music video with a sexy model getting dressed and going out on the town is gonna catch your attention. I didn't even realize at the time that it was a Van Morrison song. Now that I know the original Van. And song. I'm just gravely offended because I actually don't think that Mellencamp's cover of Wild Night is that bad. It, it's fine. It's, no, I, I like it. I'll go on the record a, with that. It's, it's a yeah. fine cover, but it's just it's undistinguished. It doesn't do. It, it, it sounds almost exactly like the original without the horns, right? And you know, as you said, he recorded it in like two takes. And I like. Oh God, I'm just gonna butcher her name, but it's Michelle Nagodacello. I don't know how to pronounce her name but i think she's actually a really good counterpoint as a, you know the co-vocalist on that song but again it's just sort of like a cromulent cover all the girls walk by just up on each other and the boys do the boogie woogie on the corner of the street and the people passing by Nothing else in this album does a thing for me. Now, imagine my surprise when both of you say this is his greatest later year album. <laughs> no, I don't think it is. Uh, although it's it's brief, it has that in its corner. It's less than a half an hour long for nine songs. All of them between... Uh, I mentioned he was too long on Human Wheels. All right, here you go. Everything's between 3 and 3.30. There you go. Um, now, I, the, the title track was also a single. I, I don't love it. Some of these songs seem unfinished. You know, there's no yeah, bass. Dance Naked. The song doesn't even seem like a song. I, I, you told you say it's a single, and I listened to it, and I thought, like, well, where's the actual song here? It, it never <laughs> actually starts. It goes for three minutes, and it's just like, I thought that was the intro. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. Some I would just qu- I would just quibble with the Wild Night cover. I, I think it's pretty good, probably better than you do, but uh, otherwise. Nothing, <laughs> nothing to remark about. There's one song I do think is good here. That's called, that's uh, another sunny day, twelve twenty-five. And uh, again, lyrically, 
it's one of his, uh, I think it's the best, clearly it's the best lyrically on the album, and I think it's the best song on the album, too. Um, you know, I, I don't want to live angry, I don't want to live scared, put some work in my hands, give me a dollar to spare, don't let me sow those seeds of despair. Um, Earth is a graveyard, it'll swallow our bones, it was here long before us, it'll be here when we're gone. Well, this earth is a graveyard, it'll swallow our bones. It was here long before us It'll be here when we're gone It's a vain generation That looks for a sign Don't you think we could make Better use of our time Yeah, the air could be cleaner And the water could too But what we do to each other Are the worst things that we do and we can treasure our freedoms behind our locked doors. But God speed the day when we're lonely no more. Again, it's it's not uh, it's not one of his very best, but I think it's certainly the best here on on, on Dan- Dance Naked, where so many lyrics seem unfinished, so many songs seem unfinished, and maybe that's sort of uh, on purpose. Again, just giving the label what they wanted, something to to market and and get one more hit single out of them. Which brings us to an album that, to my mind, is this is the, this is this is the moment where mentally I have to say I semi check out. I'd like the cover of Mr. Happy Go Lucky uh, for showing John Mellencamp at his true height, which is to say, <laughs> you know, he's basically as tall as his daughter, who I assume that's in the picture there. I don't know, um, but yeah, I, I just I I don't really care for anything on this record. I know I think it was Scott who said that. There's, there's, there's some stuff here that he likes. The next but... one. This one I don't think is very successful. Yeah, I don't um, like this one. He's working all. with a dance producer called Junior Vasquez. And, yeah. And largely, you know, actually it's weird. The, the songs, there's two songs on here that I think are are pretty good. One's called This May Not Be the End of the World, and one's called The Full Full Catastrophe. I think Full Catastrophe is the best song on Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky. This is just after his heart attack, his big heart attack in 94, where the doctors made him promise to quit smoking, and of course he never did. Um, the, those two songs that I mentioned are, are probably the, the ones where he most submits to some of the loops and programming that he, that he is incorporating into the music and then sort of builds around it. And I think it kind of works. There, there are way too many other places here where instead of complimenting, they just seem messy. The songs have these messy arrangements that don't work really well. Uh, just another day was a single... Uh, uh, I saw you first, which I, think... I like this. I like. I don't know how to pronounce it. Key West Intermezzo. Intermezzo I saw you first. Yes, I like this one. I think this is like a legitimately good song. And also, you know, the fact that he's doing it with the like drum machine, uh, it, it felt like an attempt to to be a little more modern than than he had done in the past. And I think it could have really like failed, but I think it actually worked. I, I think this is one of his last good songs. This loud Cuban band is crucifying John Lennon. No one wants to be lonely. No one wants to sing the blues. Spurs like a parrot on his tuxedo shoulder. Christ, what's she doing in? She could be dancing. 
Just the ass in a glass with the elegant finger. I wanna be what she's drinking. Yeah, I just want to be. I saw you first. I'm the first one tonight. I saw you first. Don't that give me right to move around in your heart? Everyone. These are probably, these are probably his two, or the, his two singles that are my least favorite. <laughs> so both I saw you first, and just another day. I, I really don't uh, love, and I don't think that the album itself was all that successful. I mean, if there's anybody who was to the manner born for dance music and synthesizers and sequencers, surely it's John <laughs> Cougar Mellencamp, is it not? So this brings us to the inevitable. Any, this is a joke I've made on the past in the past on our show. Any artist that is around long enough will eventually release a pretentious self-titled album. So finally, after all these years, well, actually, this is the second one because he had one called Johnny Cougar right. <laughs> back in the early days. But now we have one under his real name. Now we have John Mellencamp. Scott, is this the one that you really like? This is the one uh, this is the one i'll defend and uh, i i i think this i think this album is where the story really ends and we'll talk about what comes after this in a minute but i think this self-titled album it came out in, in uh, 98 is really the last time john it's really the last time john mellencamp made music that was meant to be digested by a general audience almost anything past this he's doing quite literally for himself uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute but this album is really good and what prevents it from being, from being even a, like say, a great late period album are the final three tracks, which are awful. Uh, they are sort of a pull through from some of the uh, dance beats mixes from Mr. Happy Go Lucky, which largely are absent on the rest of the album. But the last three songs all feature them, and they are really not good. There's one called Break Me Off Some, which is as cringy as the title would indicate. So I want to push all that aside and to concentrate on the rest of the album, which I think is actually really good. It's his first album with Columbia. He left Mercury for Columbia Records here. Ended up with um, with his worst-selling album in quite some time, but I like it. I think it is the best combination of all the things he was trying to incorporate from the last four or five albums. There are some... There are some playing with rhythms and beats. There are some loud riffs. There are some vi- the violin comes back in uh, in spades here, which I like. I think it adds a really nice flavor to a lot of the, the tracks here. It's a good amalgam of the stuff he'd been working on. Uh, the single here is Your Life Is Now. Uh, George Green co-wrote. He also co-wrote the other song I really like here called It All Comes True, which is later on in the album. Uh, but Your Life Is Now the title sort of gives you the indication of what lyrically it's about your life is now your life is now your life is now in this undiscovered moment lift your head up before the crowd we could shake this world if you would only show Children, 
Fiddle violin part here. There's a neat little post-chorus push that also I like a lot. Miss Missy features harmonica and Stan Lynch from the Heartbreakers and Izzy Stradlin from Guns N' Roses. They both guest on that track, which I, I like a lot. Weird, that, that, one, a that one has no right to work, but it does. Well, we're down on your head. I dig back on those mean things I said, Um, Positively Crazy is really unlike a lot of things in his catalog. It's this slow, sort of simmering acoustic uh, piece right in the meat of the album. I think it's a third or or fourth uh, track. And I guess by this point we should mention that Kenny uh, Aronoff is gone, uh, if you didn't tell by the last album, which was, was, you know, controlled by these program dance beats. He's not there anymore. Uh, I'm Not Running Anymore is another single from here that did did okay, but again, it, it, it does lack some of those really big... You know, thick smacks on the snare drum that Aronoff was really good for. Everything until those last three songs, I think, is really listenable. Uh, and the problem is, in 1998, there's not truly an audience for this kind of thing. No matter no matter how much he was still shooting for the charts, is one of the reasons he left Mercury for Columbia was they hadn't broken a a real big hit single for a while. Columbia couldn't either. But I do think artistically, um, this is his last really great shot. This is his last hurrah so to speak. Uh, I know some people really like the, some of the more recent folky things working with uh, T-Bone Burnett, but I, I think this is essentially the last hurrah for, for Mellencamp, the self-titled disc. Anybody else with thoughts? I don't have any. I, I don't really care for the T-Bone Burnett produced stuff from his later career. I don't really care for like all the weird folky stuff. It's not that I don't like folk. I'm the world's biggest Bob Dylan fan. I just, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to like an album like Life, Death, Love, and Freedom. Yeah, people really like that one, and I it got a Grammy I nomination. Like and I, I mentioned to uh, to Jeff and uh, and Matt in some emails before here. You know what happens after the self title is there's one more. Or he puts out Rough Harvest, which is acoustic versions of some of his favorite tracks. It was a label make good for for Mercury. Yeah, it's his contract fulfilling. Thing, uh, yeah. And then there's one more album, which essentially is kind of poppy commercial called Cutting Heads. Uh, man, Chuck D. Guest. There's two songs on there about how pop, how rap music is destructive to uh, to communities. It's it's cringy. It, I think his voice now too is kind of shot at hmm. this point, isn't it? Yeah. There's definitely a thickening and a and a deepening of the voice. It's not as dynamic as it was, and I think it's probably one of the reasons why he turns sort of inward. Um, and, and there are a, a couple of albums here. You got Trouble No More, which is a folk and blues covers record in 03. 
You got Freedom's Road from 07, which people know because of our country. He got the sweet Chevy dollars for uh, for the truck ads for the whole year. Everyone was tired of hearing our country. And then Life, Death, Love, and Freedom, with which Jeff mentioned with T-Bone Burnett. And all of these, I really have tried to get into them, and I, they, they, I, I can't. They leave me really cold, even the ones that other people really like, like that T-Bone Burnett uh, one. And uh, there's one from a few years ago, too. Is it Plain Spoken? And... and he 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 specifically has said at this point in his career he is unconcerned about selling records. He's not really concerned about making music that other people like. Even he he just wants to do what he wants to do, and they've is able to turn people on to some of the more folky aspects uh, of the music he's making now. That's what's going to make him happy. But I think that really sort of divides and fragments that audience in a way that that makes the music. Um, really unable to be appreciated by perhaps a large contingent of even former fans. Do you have any thoughts on this later period, Matt? Uh, no, I just think, uh, you know, going back to where we started, I mean, uh, Mellencamp's catalog is extensive. There are, I don't know, 20, maybe, maybe more, <laughs> like really good songs uh, that we probably know you could sing along with and know the lyrics to, but it's just nobody can stay on top forever. You know, and and, uh, and and I think that he's still putting out, you know, decent music, but you can't recapture the uh, the glory days, as Bruce might have sang. Uh, and I think that the you know from from 1982 to 1992 maybe is is his run, you know, and it doesn't mean he can't still do good stuff, but um, but that's kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. I think I agree. And uh, that's about the end of the journey, although John Mellencamp is still with us. And maybe he'll surprise us. You never you never know, I suppose, with something in the future. But, uh, but that's, where the, uh, that's where the Mellencamp discography ends at, at this point. And uh, we come to the part of the episode where your hosts will give you the two albums you must own and the five songs you really should hear from our featured artist today. And just to clarify, guys, uh, it can be from the Johnny Cougar era, the John Cougar era, the John Cougar <laughs> Mellencamp era, or even the John Mellencamp era. It is up to you to pick what fits best here. As always, we allow our guests to go first. Matt Lewis, senior columnist for The Daily Beast. Matt, your two albums and your five tracks, please. All right. He's got four albums that qualify. Uh, if I have to pick two, I'm going uh-huh and scarecrow um and in terms of the songs uh cherry bomb is his best song uh i also have to throw in authorities the authority song hurts so good pink houses and small town all right my albums i wrestled with this for a little bit because again as, as matt kind of mentioned there are some different choices you could make and uh, i still well end up agreeing with matt i i think uh-huh that first time he really figured out what he wanted to be, what he wanted to write about. Uh-huh is really good. Start to Finish and Scarecrow, I think, is is his best. I think it is his best album from, from start to finish. So Uh-huh and Scarecrow are the two albums I recommend to you. When it comes to songs, man, there are a lot of songs that are known. And by and large, you know, his best songs are the songs that you know. His best songs became the singles. There are a few album tracks I'll highlight here. Uh, Authority Song is the first song that I want to put on here. I, I, I think, especially for the pre-Scarecrow, the pre-sort uh, of mid- Midwest Heartland Rock, uh, sort of Authority Song, the, 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 the leather-jacketed bad boy sort of image is right there in that song, and it's it's simple, but it's so effective. 
Uh, Minutes to Memories from Scarecrow is a great, great piece of work. Uh, I think Paper and Fire, for a number of reasons, should be on this list of things you hear. And then um, just try to spread it around a little bit. I, I, I think Jackie Brown from Pop Singer, or from uh, from Big Daddy, is, is really one of his best songs, lyrically and melodically. And then I'm going to throw on from whenever we wanted, uh, Last Chance, which I just really dig, and it's one that people probably won't get a chance to, or probably haven't had a chance to hear in the Mellencamp of their past. And so I pointed to that one from uh, the 1991 album. Jeff, over to you. Well, when I try to think about what, what's the quintessential John Mellencamp, I, I think I can come up with two obvious answers for the albums. First one is The Kid Inside, and the second one is Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky. <laughs> I think you, you're going to get the cream of the crop if you just get those two albums. And st- oh, okay, I'm kidding. It's Scarecrow and the Lonesome Jubilee. Those are two back-to-back albums. Uh-huh is a great record as well, but it, it's just a little bit short. I think he was really improving album by album during that period in his career, and it's those two are the ones that I would pick. As for the five songs, well, I'm going to be, you know, hateful in the sense that most of my picks, in fact, I think almost all of them are his greatest hits. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the man could write a hit song really, really well. So I'll start with Pink Houses from Aha. Uh-huh. As I talked to you guys about it earlier, it has a special place in my heart. Uh, the second one I'll mention is one that, you know, we probably could have even talked about a little bit more than we did, and that's Rain on the Scarecrow. It's the first song off of Scarecrow. And then Small Town is another one I'd mention. Sure, simple lyric, simple sentiment, simple riff. You'll never forget it. Paper and Fire off of uh, Lonesome Jubilee. Again, who writes songs about, you know, the hollowing out of rural America? (laughs) Well, John Mellencamp does, and he actually does a really good job of it as well. And then Cherry Bomb, uh, which is Glory Days of Glory Days were actually a good song. Uh, And not only just a good song, but a great song. I think actually as, you know, host prerogative, I always do this. I'll throw in a six and I'll agree with Scott that, boy, you know, a song you might not remember. It wasn't one of his big hits, but Jackie Brown is a beautiful tune. And it's very uncharacteristic for Mellencamp in a lot of ways. It's not like a big rock riff, a memorable like three chord hook or something like that. It's just a really spare, sad, beautiful tune that um, if you give it a chance, I don't think you'll ever forget it. This your great Jackie Brown. This little piece of limestone This is another desperate man Take himself out This old dream Going nowhere, nowhere past We shame ourselves to watch people like this We are the Political Beats look at the career and music of John Mellencamp. We thank our guests on today's program. Matt Lewis, the senior columnist for the Daily Beast, author of the book Too Dumb to Fail, and host of the podcast Matt Lewis and the News. You find him on 
Twitter at Matt K. Lewis, Matt, thanks so much for joining us on this one. Thank you. And Jeff, uh, you, your, your, your detailed, your more thorough introduction to uh, John Mellencamp went well. I, I look forward to us uh, covering Huey Lewis and the news. And I look forward to sucking on a chili dog. (laughs) Sucking on a chili dog. You can find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. I'm on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Again, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support the show. Help it stay ad-free. Different levels for your support, including uh, the top level with remastered episodes and monthly exclusive content, too. Now the part of the episode in which we personally thank those who are supporting us via the Patreon page. We say thank you, James Hines, Andrew Oliner, Luke Brown, Greg Kula, Michael Orton, Ryan Jackson, Jason Cohen, Cliff Keller, Jack A. Theobaldi, Chad Flake, Grant Gardner, and Matthew of Madison. Thank you and everyone else who supports us via Patreon. Again, we don't do it without you. Can't do it without you. Keep this thing ad-free and support our work here. Patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and over at National Review at nationalreview.com. We're on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. <laughs>